Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Thanks for joining me for my conversation with Dr. Michael Q. McShane. Mike is the Director of National Research at EdChoice. And if you're not familiar with EdChoice, it's a great organization, nonprofit, nonpartisan, and EdChoice works all over the country to advance a K-12 education system where families, whoever they are, wherever they are, regardless of their financial circumstances, would be in a position to make choices for their children about the best learning environment. So in addition to his work at EdChoice, Mike is a contributor to Forbes. You can read his work there on education. He's also the author or co-author or editor of 10 different books on education. You'll find his writing all over the place. He's been published in the Huffington Post, National Affairs, USA Today, the Washington Post. And on top of all that, he's got a PhD in education policy from the University of Arkansas, a master's in education from Notre Dame, and he's clearly got the credentials of an education policy expert, right? All of that's true. That's partly why we're talking to him today. But the reason I was really excited to talk to Mike is that Mike's career didn't start out in the policy world. He started out as a ninth and 10th grade teacher in Montgomery, Alabama, and it was his experience in the classroom that led him to the policy world because what he saw made it clear to him that as a country, we're never going to realize the ideals that were set out in the founding unless every child has an opportunity to get a quality education. And he knew that from the classroom, he wasn't going to be able to affect that at the national level. And that drives Mike. And you're going to hear in our conversation that Mike's not an ivory tower policy wonk kind of guy. This is a personal mission for him. He wants to serve children in this country and ensure that their families have choices. And so we invited Mike to talk about what it looks like for students to go back to school in the fall, given the COVID-19 pandemic and where we are with that today. What kind of decisions have to be made by schools? How do, with that complication, how do we ensure that kids are getting the best shot at the kind of education that they deserve. So I hope you enjoy our conversation and I I know you're gonna really enjoy hearing Mike's passion for this. Before we talk about where we are today, I'd love to get uh, your opinion on where we were with schools prior to the pandemic? I mean, what were the what were the kind of challenges that we needed to be worried about that may have been exacerbated by this? Um, what things were going well that no longer are going well? I mean, is that, no, that's a big question. Yeah, no, I think exacerbated is like a really good word to use to think about this because as has happened with so many things kind of in our society and our politics, the, the pandemic has sort of exacerbated things that were already there. I don't know if it's, I mean, obviously the whole, um, disease itself is bringing something new into the fold. But a lot of the way that's interacting is just bringing into more stark relief some of the things uh, that are happening. And look, I think the pandemic showed that we have a very, very uneven, unequal education system, right? So we have, I think, around now about 13,600 school districts across the country. 
And what we saw as they rolled out these plans, it was online learning or, or you know, quasi homeschooling that was being done uh, in the wake of the uh, coronavirus sweeping across the country. We just saw some of them are better at their jobs than others are, right? And what I found fascinating about it was historically, I think we've thought along the lines of sort of wealth, wealthier districts are better at what they do than, than, than poor districts, whether that's, you know, the, the children are poor, they have less money or any of those things. And what I found fascinating was like, you would see two districts sitting right next to one another who serve functionally like demographically identical students. And one of them rolled out like a really thoughtful, articulated plan. And the one right next door just didn't like weren't able to get their act together nearly as well. And I think it just shows a kind of fragility of our education system. And it shows like whenever you have 13,600 of anything, there's going to be kind of a distribution, right? Yeah. Like some of them are going to be awesome. Like some of our school districts across the country and they shone, you know, like they were awesome and they really did a dynamite job. And some of them were absolutely terrible. And a lot of them were in this kind of messy middle, you know? And so I think that that's, broadly speaking, the kind of issue that we have with our education system. We've got some, especially on the sort of public side, we've got some dynamite school districts. And I think it's crazy. Some folks try and say like the whole education system is terrible. No, we've got some great school districts. People pay a lot of money to buy houses zoned for dynamite public schools. Like they're out there, they exist. But that's not the experience for everybody. A lot of our school districts are in this messy middle um, that aren't able to cope with things like this when it happens and, and leave lots of families kind of in the lurch. So we were talking just before we started recording about the fact that, you know, you work remotely from your organization. Um, so a lot of businesses were able to make transitions to remote working and some are more successful than others and some are in a better position to do that. In the same way with schools where you've got all this variation, what schools were able to successfully move or transition to this uh, kind of out of school or virtual schooling model that they had to follow once there were all these stay at home mandates and what characterized those, those transitions versus the, the districts or the schools that were not able to effectively make that transition. Yeah, I think a couple of things, you know, there's some great work done by the American Enterprise Institute where they looked at school districts across the country and they did, I think it was kind of a random sample of different school districts to try and see how people were responding to the pandemic. And generally speaking, what they found was about one in five districts provided what they considered to be sort of robust, high quality online learning with like substantial interaction between teachers and students, like good stuff, one in five, about two in five did kind of okay. They had passable sort of online learning where kids were still engaged, they were still doing stuff. And, and then another two and five, the last two and five did basically nothing or did, did, you know, send packets home with kids or had very limited or at all interaction. And if we use roughly, I mean, there's about 55 million school children in America, but to make the math easier, let's just call it 50 million. We're talking 10 million kids got dynamite stuff, 20 million kids got okay stuff and 20 million kids got terrible stuff. So it shows, I mean, depending on who you talk to, if you're one of the 10 million who got the awesome stuff, people say, I don't know, my school district did pretty well. But there, we saw that disparity. I think schools and school districts that responded well to this had a couple things in common. I mean, one was you had school districts that were already making transitions to more technology-based stuff. So they had iPads or Chromebooks. They had done online courses. They used Google Classroom, like all of that sort of stuff. They had that infrastructure in place. 
So that transition was much easier for them to just put that content, you know, wherever the, the, the sort of Chromebook was, was wherever the learning was taking place. So I think they had that going for them. But the second one, uh, I think, is that schools and districts that had strong communities and, and, and strong communities marked by great communication, working together, sort of sacrificing for one another, all the things that we think of that build strong communities, I think they weathered this well as well. Because if you think about it, especially in the early days of this, there was so much that was unknown. Things were changing hour to hour, day to day, didn't know what they were going to do. Okay, we need to shut down for like two weeks. Is it going to be two weeks? Is it going to be two months? Is it going to be the rest of the year? Is it going to continue on in the new school year? So schools that had high levels of trust between their administrators, their teachers, and their families to know that everyone's doing their best and we're going to try and work with one another. I think a lot of really great schools did a lot of surveying of their parents. So, you know, they launched online learning uh, for the first week. And on that Friday, they sent a, uh, a survey around and asked what worked, what didn't, because they were trying to calibrate what's too much work, what, what's too little work. So there were lots of great examples, I think, of schools really doing that strong lines of communication, strong sense of community, and having that leg up already on the technology stuff, I think really helped people out. Right on. So as you're talking about that, I was thinking early on in your response that one, one potential policy response to the two-fifths of kids got a really bad uh, education or got a really bad circumstance as a result of the pandemic and three-fifths were either good or kind of okay. One, one response people might make to that is, well, that needs to stop. So we need some top-down sort of approach that will solve that problem so that five-fifths or four-fifths or whatever of students in a case of a crisis are, not, are, are getting a good education and are getting that great experience that, that you were describing. But then as you were talking about the things that made it successful, in terms of community, in terms of communication, those seem like things that cannot be top-down imposed, right? Good communication, community. So what's the right policy response when we look at what's happened? Or is there even a policy response that we need? Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, when people say we need some national response as a top-down thing, I'm like, well, when you all know what it is, let me know. Because I, I, I haven't heard it. I haven't found it. You know what I mean? So, so I think that's a the challenge is I just, you're right. It doesn't exist, right? So what I try to think about is even outside of education or just sort of in life in general, like how do we build systems that are more resilient? You know, there was like Nassim Taleb who wrote that great book, Anti-Fragile. So how do we create systems that, that even might benefit from external shocks? How does it make it stronger? And I think communities, tight-knit communities are a great example of this, where when something bad happens in a tight-knit community, it actually draws people closer together. You, you, you know, you don't know who your friends are until something bad happens to you. And you realize how important these people are in your life and your family and all of these people that are like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately decentralized systems are more resilient than centralized systems are. Because what we saw across so many of these school districts was you are at the mercy of what your superintendent and school district decide, right? So if you want to do something different, but like your school district says like, well, this is what we're doing. We're sending packets home. It's like, well, wait, I, I want something different. Sorry, this was the decision. And there's sort of one failure point there. If they decide, yeah, juice isn't worth the squeeze or it's going to be too much work or like we can't do it, you're, you're just out of luck, right? Yeah. Whereas a more decentralized system allows lots of different schools to come up with different responses, right? And, and I think that, look, as we transition into looking at, at coming back in the fall, 
you know, some of the surveying that we've done at EdChoice and other shows, you know, there's a substantial portion of the population, both of the parent population and it should be said of the teacher population that are comfortable with going back to school. I mean, a mm. recent polling that we did said about 55% of parents say they're comfortable sending their children back to school or 57% of parents said they're comfortable with their students going back to school. And about 55% of teachers said that they were comfortable going back, which is fascinating because I would have thought there would have been a bigger difference between those two groups, yeah. but there's relative unanimity be between those two. Now, again, when we're talking about 55 million school children, you know, 43% of them who aren't comfortable going back, that's a lot of kids. That's a lot of kids. And yeah. we have 3.2 million teachers. So 45% of them is a whole lot of teachers, right? And we have this big, vast, diverse country, right? So I'm in Kansas City, Missouri, um, where, you know, coronavirus case counts are, are on the rise. But there are counties across, you know, central Missouri, northern Missouri, southern Iowa, western Kansas, you know, that are within a couple hours drive of here that, like, are generally not really seeing a whole lot of coronavirus there. So, you know, the, the answers that might happen for where I live versus where other people in even the same state that I live in are totally different. Like I imagine there are gonna be tons of schools, rural schools that are generally isolated from one another that are gonna basically go back to normal because you know the coronavirus just isn't really affecting them because they're yeah. living rural isolated community. You know what I mean? So yeah. so I think there there isn't this one answer, both because of the incredible diversity of the schools and communities that we're in, but also just like the preferences of parents. Like some parents ultimately what we're going to have to be doing is weighing some really difficult trade-offs, which mm. is people are worried about the, the health effects of the virus, but they're also worried about the negative effects of kids not in school, which are, that's like a serious problem, right? Like kids not learning, especially in really important early grades can have long lasting negative income, uh, negative impacts on them. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to wait. There is no right answer. Yeah different people are going to weigh those challenges differently. And so having a system that's much more voluntary in nature, right? Where people can pick, pick where to go to school. So people that are, you know, more risk tolerant or that weigh those things differently can say, Hey, look, here's a school that's going to open for five days a week. We recognize that there are risks that are part of that. The teachers know that and are choosing to be here. The families know that and are choosing to be here versus there's a school over here. That's much more worried uh, about these things. So, so allowing for that type of stuff to happen, um, I think also, uh, in you know, continuing on this incredibly long-winded answer, but um, uh, you know, another piece of this is like part of what we need to do. I think in America today is turn down the dial on a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. as, sort of as you mentioned, like the fact that wearing a mask in public has become a polarizing thing. I think just shows kind of how sick our politics are, um, and so saying like, look we don't have to come up with one answer, right? It's not like we're going back to school or we aren't. We're gonna let different people answer this differently. We're not gonna force anybody's kids into something that they don't wanna be in. We're not gonna force teachers into stuff that they don't wanna do. We can turn down the dial on so much of this divisive stuff and, and, and make, make our communities more pleasant places to live in. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that makes perfect sense when you think about 13,000 school districts or more than 13,000 school districts, the idea that there would be a one-size-fits-all solution doesn't make any sense. Um, I mean, it probably makes sense to somebody, but, but as you talk about it, it certainly doesn't sound like it makes sense. So, but I think for a lot of people, then they would see what's going on uh, recently in the news about pulling federal funding from schools as being, you know, you talked about Kansas City. Well, if in Kansas City, 
cases are going up, but there's a rural part of the state where they're not. There shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all solution for Missouri. Uh, you know, local communities should make those decisions. But then if, and I, I think that's right, but the way we have it set up now, if, if pulling funding, if schools don't go back, federal funding, if schools don't reopen in the fall is one solution. The first question I have about that is what does federal funding do in these schools? What percentage of it is? Uh, or what percentage of funding is federal? And what kind of impact is that going to have on a community that says, look, it doesn't matter. We're in some place in Texas where there's, you know, um, new cases every hour. We don't want to send our kids back to school. We're going to make the trade-off. The trade-off is we're going to forgo whatever federal funding is. What kind of impact is that going to have? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, there's, there's sort of two parts of the conversation, I think, about federal funding right now. So there's the general federal funding that schools get, which is about, generally speaking, 10% of their funding. If you want a good rule of thumb across the country, though, again, 13,600 school districts, your mileage may vary. About 45% of funding comes from local sources. These are like your local property tax dollars. About 45% comes from the state mix of sales tax, income tax, depending on what your state is, you know, what's in there. And about 10% comes from the feds. Now, the two largest federal K-12 spending line items are Title I, which is money for low-income students, and um, uh, funding for students with IDEA dollars. So funding for students with spe special needs. Mm -hmm. That's the vast majority of federal spending that goes to, goes to school districts. There's other stuff around teacher professional development and stuff, but those are rounding errors compared to the other two pieces. I think a lot of the discussion now about federal funding is about sort of recovery dollars or, or whatever CARES Act or CARES Act II or whatever they're talking about now. So saying we're not going to give you sort of coronavirus specific funding unless you do what we tell you to do. Um, and I have to be honest with you, hearing that from particularly our Secretary of Education, who has been such a fervent advocate for localism, for educational choice, for not one-size-fits-all solutions, I, I found it deeply, deeply disappointing. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, as... Uh, you know, as a conservative in the, in the education, as a free market thinker, as a liberty oriented person, we've been fighting for generations to keep Washington out of the decision making of local schools like this. And so in one sort of, you know, snippet to throw that all away and, and, and frankly, to make a lot of us look like hypocrites, which mm. is like, wait a second, you guys have been fighting for local control and decentralization and all of this stuff until right now where it looks like maybe the politics are in your favor. Now you're going to turn it around. I mean, I think it's bad. It's short-sighted. It, it shouldn't happen. Now, all of that having been said, I do think that there is um, a strong argument to be made about kind of decentralizing that federal funding, like mm -hmm. that relief funding that's coming and targeting it more towards parents as opposed to school systems. Because I do think for families, if your school district says, as, as these things are starting to roll out now, I think I saw literally just before we started talking, uh, four of the nation's 10 largest school districts are going to be fully online for the mm -hmm. start of school year. They had tried different plans um, and some have even pushed, I think I saw Montgomery County, which is outside of Washington, DC, huge school district that's there has said they're doing, they, they pulled the trigger online learning the whole first semester. Um, so all the way through December. So some have pushed back and said, we're going to roll in in, in October, some are in September. But I think, I think realistically, we're going to keep seeing those push back. So I see a need for families. If they're saying, look, my school district isn't going, is going fully online from the fall. I want us to support them to go somewhere else. 
Mm. You know, even if it's, even if it's going to be online, but online in a smaller school or online in a place where they think they have more say in this discussion, whether it's one of these schools that's going to operate in a hybrid fashion, they're going to come part of the week or in some schools that are much smaller and are rethinking things and are going to open full time, but sort of responsibly and, 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 you know, in line with what the American association of pediatrics and all these folks are saying that schools should be doing right. I get that that's much more difficult for a massive school district to do as opposed to one individual private school or charter school or something like that. So I do see saying, look, we want funding to go to families, finding school environments that are operating, that are meeting their needs, that are doing something. But no, a blanket sort of, you either need to open full-time five days a week or we're not going to give you any money. Um, I think it's just short-sighted, foolhardy, and, and, and like I said, really, really regrettable. Yeah. Do you think there's any likelihood that the, what you're describing where those funds could be given to parents or they could be the, the use of those funds could be better decentralized. Do you think there's any likelihood that that'll happen? So I do see that happening and I see it happening like at the state level. So the state mm-hmm. of Oklahoma has done this. So the CARES Act around one had a couple different pots of money that actually gave governors a pretty wide latitude in how they spend them. And so I think entrepreneurial governors that see this could use that money to create these types of things. Um, I think in South Carolina, there was just a reference earlier this week to doing uh, something along these same lines. So I think it's more rather than having it run by Washington, D.C., saying, look, we are going to send a pot of money to states that governors have latitude to either disperse in sort of education savings accounts or something, some vehicle that directly goes to families. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and look, some governors are going to choose to spend that money yeah. differently, right? Yeah. They're going to decide to plow it back into their traditional public school system. And that's the way, you know, Dems are to breaks. Like that's yeah, how yeah, this yeah. stuff works, right? Like that's, yeah. that's just like how the world goes and that's okay. If yeah. that's what they're judging their state does and that's the people in their state that elected them to spend mm-hmm. that money, then that's how they, they should spend. I can disagree with it, but that's how our system works. Yeah. But I think we will see like Oklahoma, South Carolina, some of these other places using those dollars in creative ways. And the best way the feds can do that is by giving governors the latitude to, to spend it that way. Yeah, great. So one area where there's definitely been, it, it sounds like growth or at least uh, affinity for the idea is in homeschooling. And I read... I think you quoted in one of your Forbes pieces or maybe um, on the AEI piece that you have that there is an increase in sort of favorable attitudes towards homeschooling as a result of the pandemic, or it appears to be as a result of the pandemic. My first question about that is why does that seem to be the case? I mean, is it because people feel like homeschooling when they've had to they've had to experience this at-home learning is less of a burden than they expected it to be? Um, but also, you know, now we're seeing, uh, certainly on social media, I've seen it, it's been picked up in some national news outlets. People are talking about these micropods and hybrid homeschooling and all of these things. All of a sudden, this is in the national conversation. You've been looking at this for a long time. Tell us a little bit about that and also why people's attitudes seem to be changing somewhat. Yeah, it's so crazy. So I've been writing, I basically spent the last school year writing a book about hybrid homeschooling. It is due to the publisher on August 1st. So Talk like, about timing, Mike. Talk about timing. Now, it would be better if it was coming out on August 1st. Yeah. It's probably not going to come out until yeah. December, January. But yes, I, I struck a lot of interest in this now, which is, now look, 
partially I'm, I'm sort of morally conflicted about this because the reason that it's so popular is because this horrible thing has happened. So yeah, while yeah. in a very narrow sense, it has been good for me professionally, I, all things considered, I wish I was less, I wish it was yeah. a less popular idea right now. Less right? timely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But look, all clouds have, have silver linings, uh, narrow though they may be. But yeah, so this whole idea of hybrid homeschooling has been actually going on for a long time. Um, on the private school side, there's the university model schools. The first one was launched in Texas in the early 1990s. On the charter schooling side, Colorado, Michigan, California have been doing this for 20 and 25 years. But a hybrid homeschool is simply a school where children attend sort of traditional brick and mortar classes for some portion of the week and are schooled at home for some portion of portion of the week. So some schools, it's two, three, where it's two days in school and three days at home. Some it's three, two, some it's four, one, some it's one, four, some go half days, whatever. But it's, it's some mix where you're doing some of the work at home and some of the work at schools. And so, yeah, I've been doing research on this. So talking to teachers that are involved in this, school leaders, parents, going to schools, checking them out. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing more people be interested in homeschooling or thinking about these hybrid options is some of the sort of criticisms that hybrid homeschoolers have of the traditional education system. And one of the biggest things that, that, that hybrid homeschoolers talk about is this phrase you hear over and over again, where they talk about the gift of time. And they have a pretty serious critique of the traditional school system, which is especially for sort of high powered schools where that are academically rigorous and kids are trying to get into top colleges. So they have a lot of extracurricular activities, you know, kid wakes up in the morning, slams down breakfast, rushes the school, yeah. 50 minutes, bell, 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 25 minutes for lunch where they slam it down. They're asleep in the afternoon as they kind of muddle through their classes extracurriculars or a job after school, come home, slam down dinner, do homework after the end of this incredibly long day where they're exhausted and it's basically useless and they're banging their head against the wall. They fall asleep too late um, and then repeat. So it's not sort of, it doesn't meet the rhythms of family life where families aren't able to spend as much quality time with one another. It doesn't really meet the kind of circadian rhythms of, of children and sort of fitting all of those things. Homework is frustrating because the kids are already tired and it's like oftentimes busy work and it's miserable. And so these hybrid homeschools say, whoa, okay. Like, Rather than that, like on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you're going to work from home. So when you get home from your extracurricular activity or whatever on, on Monday afternoon, you're done. Yeah. Have a leisurely dinner, hang out with your family, wake up the next morning and attack that work fresh on your own schedule at your own pace and, and all of those sorts of things. Because frankly, and, and I should be clear, I used to be a high school teacher. I taught ninth and 10th grade, so I'm not trying to be super critical of things, but I think any teacher would, would back me up on this one. Schools waste a ton of time. Yeah. Schools waste a ton of time, administrative work, passing periods, assemblies, whatever, like all like of the, this stuff. The first yeah. thing my kids, I have two teenagers in the first two weeks of being at home working like virtually, the first thing they noticed was how much more time they had. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and look, in classrooms, teaching is tough because if you have a classroom of 20 or 25 kids, you've got a spread of how fast and how slow kids are, are able to work. And so the kids that can be moving faster, you're kind of holding back and the kids that are too slow, you're going too fast for them. And so it's really, I always gave the example of like giving homework. You know, I probably gave the right amount of homework for one kid. Yeah. And ha- you know, the other half got too little because they, they needed more practice in order to get it. And the other half had too much because they got 
got it on like the second problem. They move on. You know right. what I mean? Right. So, so I think families are recognizing that and saying like, whoa, wait a second, like four hours of really sort of focused work is accomplishing the same thing that a traditional school is doing in seven or eight. Right. Mm-hmm. And kids are happier. Um, adults are happier, right? Like there's like, it's just a, it's when, when I spend time in hybrid homeschools uh, and when I talk to families, one of the things that just seem to be more like relaxed, right? Because it's like, it's cool. We got all day tomorrow to do this. It's all right. We got, we're not, we are not pressed for time. Like we can figure all of this out. Don't worry about it. And so I think that that more and more families uh, saw this as a time period to actually spend more quality time with their kids they like their kids. They want to spend more time around them. You know, I think it's, right. I laugh because there's that meme that kind of circulates a back to school time every year where, you know, you have like the kids with their backpacks on and the sad faces and like mom and dad jumping for joy in the air. And then like, I right. totally get it. I totally, people want them to go back to school, whatever. But there's lots of families that are like, yeah, that's not my experience at all. Like, I feel bad when my kids go back to school because we actually had an awesome summer together and we really enjoyed each other's company. And so for those types of people that, Again, because the American education system is so huge, you know, some of the research, again, we've done at EdChoice, some of the polling said about 25% of in a nationally representative sample said that they were much more interested in homeschooling after mm-hmm. this experience. So again, it's only 25%, but 25%, 55 million people, we're talking about a lot of folks. Even if over the course of the next year or two, 2%, 5% of families decide to try something new like this. That's a sea change in education. I mean, it's millions of kids that we're, that we're talking about. But that's the thing is I just think that, you know, as difficult as this has been for lots of people and lots of families, it has brought other families close together, allowed for this time to really build wonderful relationships um, with your kids. And people don't want to give that up. They want to keep that going. It seems to me that there are a a number of ways in which opening up those choices and giving people exposure to those different choices is really positive. I suspect those benefits are not equally distributed any more than the experiences that kids had as a result of the pandemic. So for somebody, and actually the thing I read about micropods was you know, it's in the Bay Area, right? So th- there, there are a lot of people who have choices, who are well off, who can find ways with re- the resources to put together these small groups of families, you know, that sort of thing. What about the people who are already, already don't have many choices, struggle with resources? Are, are they going to be in a position to take advantage of some of these insights or is that terrible experience they might have had as a result of the pandemic going to further more bad experience down the road as opposed to opening choices? No, I mean, these, the, the pandemic pods that you're talking about, I think is like a perfect example of sort of what's happening here where yet low income people are going to be frozen out of that, right? Middle income people and wealthier people are going to be able to band together with their friends and find someone they know who was a teacher who used to be a teacher does whatever. And they're going to be able to go in there, you know, in their basement or their kitchen, and they're going to be able to teach six or eight kids. Um, and it's going to make their life easier to work and, you know, they'll be able to afford it and all of those things. And I think for those kids, I, I bet you it's going to be an awesome experience. And actually for the teacher who only has to teach six kids or whatever, I bet it's going to be an awesome experience for them as well. But low-income families are not going to be able to experience that same thing. And it's heartbreaking and it's difficult. Now, what that tells us is that we should be supporting those families, 
we should be creating much more flexible funding streams for them so that they are able to do this. And let's just do, let's just do a little math here, right? You know, across the country, depending on how you sort of count um, how much money we spend on schools, whether you want to include capital and everything, you know, the census bureau says it's about 12 and a half thousand bucks per kid per year. Sometimes it reaches up to maybe 15 if we talk about all in for everything, but something like $15,000. If that was more portable, think about if families were able to take that and they wanted to start themselves a little pandemic pod, right? You go up to a teacher and say like, I'm you have to teach four kids Four. Yeah. we'll pay you 60 grand. This is without spending an additional penny on education, but saying we will pay you $60,000 to teach four kids. Who doesn't take that deal, right? Teachers are going to take that deal. Families are going to take that deal. I suspect you would, that deal. you would attract people to teaching that otherwise oh, wouldn't yeah. consider it, right? For sure. And again, maybe you have a teacher that, you know, that wants to teach eight kids and make 120 grand. Right. God bless them. That's awesome. <laughs> Sounds great, right? So just looking at the numbers where this doesn't have to be some crazy expensive thing or some new thing that we do, but just by sort of creating that funding flexibility. So again, we have mechanisms for this. Education savings accounts, school vouchers, tuition tax credit scholarships. Now, generally speaking, the sort of school vouchers and tuition tax credits sort of have, have private schools as the default. And so they have to be kind of funneled through some of those established things, but things like education savings account, imagine just taking some funding or I get, I don't think, you know, in order to make this transition sort of fair and equitable and whatever, you know, maybe every one of those $15,000 doesn't follow the kid. Maybe it's 10,000. We leave 5,000 in the traditional public school sector so that that is a, a sort of default option, a fallback option. So it has the resources that it needs for families that might not be able to make choices, that may not have the connections to be able to do this. We still want to have those options available for, for families. I don't want it to be everyone's on their own. And, mm. and if you can't find six friends to have a pod, you know, you're, you're out of luck. Um, but even again, even at $10,000 that, that, that families could take, I mean, six or seven kids is 60 or 70 grand to, to put your little pandemic pod together. Um, or, you know, you're a post pandemic pod if we want to really keep going with the alliteration here. Right. But I just think like opening people's minds to these opportunities and opening people's minds to the amount of resources that we already spend on education and the way that it sort of gets eaten up by bureaucracy and administration and all of those things, because, you know, Think of your average teacher. Like if teachers really internalize this idea, like, wait a second, I have 25 kids in my class and my, my state's spending 13 grand a kid. Where's that money going? Like, it's not going to me, you know, or some very small fraction of that's actually going to them. So I think asking these kind of hard questions and thinking about ways to redo it, which again, we're not talking about spending one additional dollar, just redeploying the existing resources that we have to create a much more kind of humane system for, for teachers and for kids. So say somebody's listening to this and they say, yeah, that sounds right to me. I would, I, I'm all for that. What does an individual who, whether it's their kid they're worried about or someone else's kid that they're worried about do in that circumstance to try and encourage that as a solution, more decentralization, more family control of that spending? Is it sharing content on social media about this? Is it you know, looking into policy, what's, what is an individual going to be able to do to try and encourage this? Yeah, you know, there are lots of great advocacy organizations that exist in states all across the country that try to promote school choice, that, that try to promote 
a greater set of options for, for families. So I think getting involved in those, identifying who your kind of local, your local group is, because it's going to vary from state by state. But if you, you know, just Google school choice and then your state or school choice advocacy in your state, you're probably going to find a handful of different organizations um, that do that do work like this, and they work with your elected representatives, and they work with organizations like the one that that, that I work for to get the resources, research, knowledge, all that sort of stuff that's out there. But I think getting involved in those types of organizations, and frankly, like if you don't have one in your state, um, sort of depending on your ability, starting one, you know, reaching out to an organization like ours, say, hey, look, I'm in Minnesota, or I'm in New Mexico, or I'm somewhere. And it doesn't appear like we we have a sort of organization for this. We'd be interested in starting one. Do you know anybody in our state that you could connect us with? Do you know any ways to sort of get these things up off the ground? I think would be awesome and would be something we'd love to help people with. Your book is due to the publisher and hopefully coming out later this year. So we already talked about that. If people want to follow your work, where's the best place for them to do that? Totally. You can follow me on Twitter. So I'm at MQ underscore McShane. Um, but also I have a sort of landing page on EdChoice's website. So if you just Google my name and, and EdChoice, I have a Forbes column. So if you just kind of Google me and Forbes, um, I, I publish on there pretty regularly too. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And if you'd like to read some of Mike's writing, just go to our show notes and you'll find links there to some of his pieces at Forbes and elsewhere. And you can also find links to some of the resources we discussed. I think just as to wrap up the conversation with Mike, the thing that really stands out to me is something that he said very early on, and that is that there are more than 13,000 school districts in this country. And as I think about that number, I think it really is kind of crazy to imagine that there is a one-size-fits-all solution for 13,000 school districts about what to do when kids go back to school in the fall in the face of this pandemic. I think that education is a very, very personal subject. We all want the best for our kids. doesn't matter where we are, who we are. That's true. And because it's so personal, I think it is the kind of thing that can lead to a lot of strong feelings and disagreement. And that is probably especially true when we start talking at the national level or we talk about politics. And I think the way to make discussions about education policy more productive for each of us would be to remember these 13,000 different school districts and the fact that each one of them is facing a different set of issues and a different set of experiences with the pandemic. If we can remember that we have some common agreement, and that is that we all want the best for kids and start there as opposed to starting with the political or the national policy, I think we'll find the conversations we have with our friends and family about education policy to be a lot more productive and practical. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.